We were able to create a family literacy project where we provided 50 families home computers and internet access. And the whole family, the, the only requirement was everyone in the family needed to spend an hour a day using the computer for learning English. They could do anything else they wanted with it for the rest of the time, at least one hour a day. And what people were telling us was that basically the families would gather around together. And they'd all spend an hour learning English together. And we found that the families, we had a control group, the families that did do that, uh, the whole family, including the student in the class, in the school, increased their English scores, their English uh, comprehension by uh, about 80% higher than the group. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What are some effective and practical ways to differentiate reading comprehension strategies for English learners? How does motivation, relationship building, and autonomy impact student growth? How might family engagement strategies like home visits help provide actionable insight leading to better reading comprehension and perhaps more importantly, a joy in reading? We discuss these topics and much more with Larry Ferlasso. Larry teaches English, social studies, and international baccalaureate classes to English learners and mainstream students at Luther Burbank High School in Sacramento, California. He has written nine books, the latest of which is titled The ELL Teacher's Toolbox, which he co-wrote with Katie Hall-Sipniewski. He and Katie are presently editing a series of practical classroom books for social studies, science, and math teachers. They are also preparing a second edition of the ESL ELL Teacher's Survival Guide. In addition, he is writing a fourth book on student motivation, Building Intrinsic Motivation in the Classroom, a Practical Guide. Larry has won several awards, including the Leadership for a Changing World Award from the Ford Foundation, and was the grand prize winner of the International Reading Association Award for Technology and Reading. In the past, he has taught courses in the Teacher Credential Program at California State University, Sacramento, and the University of California, Davis. Larry also writes a popular education blog, a weekly teacher advice column for Education Week Teacher, and semi-regular posts for the New York Times and the British Council. His articles on education policy appear in the Washington Post and in publications such as ASCD Education Leadership, Social Policy, and Language Magazine. In addition, he hosts a weekly radio show on BAM Education Radio. Larry was a community organizer for 19 years prior to becoming a public school teacher which is where we begin our conversation in this episode. Let's get started. Larry Ferlasso, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Well, thank you for having me, Steve. I'm a big fan of the show and highly recommend it on my blog. Well, thanks. That means a lot because the resources that you put out there are uh, consumed by many of the folks that I work with directly at Elevation and in lots of other places as well. 
So I want to actually talk a little bit about that and sort of how you got to this point where you're putting out all this stuff while also teaching. Um, I think many, many folks know uh, about you as, a, as an educator, sort of a prolific blogger, and just general great source of information, resources, and, and inspiration for working with Yells. I know I am in that camp. But you're also uh, a full-time high school teacher, which I was one too, so it blows my mind that you're able to do all this work. And I think perhaps even more interesting, you spent 20 years before that as a community organizer. So I'm curious about how that particular experience has influenced your work, both as an educator and it contributed to so many professional learning networks. Well, during my 19-year community organizing career, I worked with uh, religious congregations, labor unions, community groups to basically help uh, people develop their leadership skills and to help build political power. And during that time, I saw the amazing positive change that people made in their lives based on what they had learned through organizing about, you know, seeing that the abilities that they hadn't thought they had within them, the value of working with people different from yourselves. Uh, and, and I concluded that, I mean, these folks were learning this in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, even seventies. Right. I thought, well, wow. If, nicer if people learn this stuff a little earlier which is what led me to become uh, a teacher and to look at teaching and at how I can apply many of my organizing skills to the classroom ranging from the importance of building relationships to uh, identifying self-interests leading with my ears instead of my mouth, uh, helping students recognize the capacity they have to achieve their dreams and to work together to deal with some of the bigger systemic issues facing their communities. So that's what I try to do in the classroom as well. And uh, obviously, it's not quite the same as doing community organizing with adults, but there is a lot of overlap. Sure. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, I feel like, you know, what you mentioned about working with folks of sort of all ages and thinking about how we can do this um, earlier and sort of applying some of those uh, strategies and and skills that you learn there to the classroom, I think is great. And I think, you know, many of our our wonderful teachers start sort of teaching um, either later after having uh, having had some experience doing something else. Or I find sometimes, uh, at least in my case, completely by accident. But it's nice because it brings different perspectives into um, into the profession, and certainly as well as I mentioned, um, into the uh, the teachers who are learning um, from one another on professional learning networks as well. Right. I mean, there is no one right way to enter the teaching profession. So it's uh, it's just a bigger question of what you do once you get into it. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and that you just continue learning and remember that, you know, there's, uh, there's always something else to learn and always somebody you can learn from. So great. That's a nice intro to kind of let people know a little bit about you. Maybe people knew, know about your work, but didn't know about that. So I, I wanted to kind of dive into that. But now we're going to get into the topic at hand here, which is one that, that people have actually asked um, us uh, or myself sort of as, as the person who's doing the podcast and putting some resources out there for folks. 
Um, and that's reading comprehension. People have really been asking, you know, I'm working with English language learners. I'm sort of struggling with this reading comprehension piece. Um, and it's something that I, as a foreign language teacher, sort of also struggled with for a variety of, varieties, uh, of reasons. So I want to start with like a super um, practical but probably difficult uh, scenario. Um, so, so, here, so here it goes. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fourth grade teacher uh, with two new kids from country X, three from country Y, one from country Z. Maybe I'm not used to working with English language learners. I need to get these kids to read. I can verbally communicate with them through pantomime and through different ways, and that's sort of, I'm getting that across. But how can I get kids on four different ELP levels to read about global warming or Oliver Twist or some other ancient text? The question that people ask is, what the heck do I do? How do I start? I know it's very broad, but I want to start there with just your, your, your initial reaction to that question. Well, it's a great question, and it touches on a lot of important issues. One of the uh, one big problem that happens across the country, and that I certainly have discovered, and when I have taught at uh, university teacher preparation programs, is when newcomers get parachuted in to mainstream classes with no support or preparation for the mainstream teacher. Right. Uh, and that happens all the time. And it's insane. Uh, that, that, and, and my recommendation in that kind of situation is uh, no matter what the content class is, what you want to do is help the newcomer begin to develop basic language skills. And, uh, you know, there are several ways to do that, ranging from uh, just, you know, having students use tools like Duolingo mm -hmm. uh, to begin to acquire English, um, to working with a peer tutor, Ideally, for example, in our school, we are able to get, we don't really have teaching assistants, uh, but that we get seniors who might be fluent in the language of a newcomer, or even if they aren't fluent in the language of the newcomer, to work with them one-on-one -on -one with uh, specific guidelines and how to be supportive. But the focus, I mean, initially, you know, you can't, plan on teaching U.S. history to someone who has had no experience in English and who just came over to, your, you know, the country yesterday, right? I mean, sure. it's, you know, don't worry about the content. Spend some time getting them acquainted with English and becoming more comfortable with that. So I think that's one. That's in terms of newcomers. Yep. Secondly, uh, you know, one other option that... I use is there, there are there are many sites that provide what's I guess you'd call it the same text at different lexile levels mm -hmm. uh, that you can have groups by English proficiency that can be reading the same topic and have but have different supports for example in my US history class uh, just last week, which is primarily English language learners, but it's a, a wide range of English proficiency. Sure. So I'll have a simplified, I had a simplified 
text on the Lewis and Clark expedition that was read by uh, one group of students with one student being of higher English proficiency. And then I had three other groups reading various lexile levels of the same article. And first part of the day, uh, everybody had small whiteboards. I mean, well, first, I'm sorry, I should preface it. First, I pre-taught some specific key terms right. that students were able to use in a word chart and write down their the definition, both in English and in their home language. Then uh, I read a couple of the paragraphs as an introduction. Then students broke into those small groups and took turns reading those paragraphs and having other students copy them down, uh, like a sentence, and then they would change. Next person reads one sentence, everybody copies that down, checks to see if it's right. Mm -hmm. um, then uh, after that, along with a, a sentence starter, uh, students had to develop a summary for that page. And again, everybody is reading this, it's the, in one sense, it's the same text. In another sense, it's different texts because the difference, difference in the complexity, text sure. complexity. Other ways to do it, um, I will encourage students, if, if we're going to be doing a, covering a topic, let's say the Civil War, uh, the American Civil War, first thing we'll do in, in my class is students will talk to families and do research and identify uh, experiences of the Civil War in their home countries. Mm -hmm. So they can bring, they can connect that background knowledge to the study of uh, the Civil War in the United States. So, you know, all of our students have background, lots and lots of background knowledge. I mean, it's, you know, and in many ways, it's, you know, it provides her a richer perspective than some of the background knowledge of students who have been raised in the United States. So we just have to figure out ways to access that and help them apply it to developing and assisting them in their comprehension of the text that they're going to be reading. Uh, one other third way that I'll often do is a version of the old standby of preview, view, and review, mm -hmm. where in bilingual classrooms where the lesson is previewed in the home language, the, then the lesson is done in English, and then the lesson is reviewed in the home language. In the version that I do, uh, there are plenty of online sites to get uh, summaries in home languages of similar topics. And there are plenty of videos in different languages of similar topics that we're going to cover. So I'll often have students, I'll ask students to read it or watch the video over the weekend prior to when we're going to be studying. Right. And it just enables them to spend, it just makes it much more comprehensible if students have some prior knowledge. And so many of our students, especially in the history classes that I'm teaching this year, they don't have much prior knowledge of U.S. history, right? Yeah. I mean, all of our other students have been learning about U.S. history for the past 10 years, you know, in school. 
Right. So, and I just try to put myself in the, my, I mean, I, I have been learning Spanish for 30 years and I try to put myself in the mindset of how I would feel if I was in a classroom in Mexico uh, and having everything in Spanish and trying to figure out what would be most helpful to me. Yeah. That empathy piece and putting yourself in that mindset is crucial. Well, I mean, you just, you just said a lot of things that I think is really useful. And I think like you actually, I think use the word like the old standby or, or this simple tool. I mean, you know, we, we, we've actually talked in another episode, we talked about how back to basics isn't necessarily boring, right? Like everybody's kind of looking for the shiny new object in education. I was certainly um, a part of that, maybe even guilty at it to an extent, but it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about, you use the word sites quite a bit to help. Um, you're not talking about necessarily specific websites that are tailored to meet the needs of English language learners. You're thinking, all right, I need this. I need background knowledge in someone's language who's in my classroom. Where do I get that thing? Um, so the, the, the planning of it and the thought of it isn't, oh, I should use technology to find this or, um, oh, I, I need to make sure that this kid understands such and such about the civil war in our country so that we can get them to, 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 point, to point B. It's more what experience does that particular student have and how can I leverage it and how can I find it, you know, relatively easily without driving myself crazy so I can sustain this already difficult job. Um, you know, and, and the other thing that I'll say, and I'll, I'll sort of let you react to it is you, you know, you seem to really, in, in all of that that you just mentioned, you seem to stress at the beginning, you know, sort of building relationships. You talked about having um, perhaps a senior working with another student who's interested in that language, even if they're not fully proficient in the language. I love it that you said that because students are learning from one another. You talk about the supports that students need. Some of, the, some of that might be technology. Some of it's differentiation, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and then, you know, you got into the idea of making connections with students. Um, and again, like, I feel like the common thread through all this, and, and I'm interested in your reaction, is like, you know, we can do this with the technology and the tools that we have relatively simple if we just sort of design what we're trying to do to meet those needs. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head that uh, it's just, a, it's a question of, I think it's a question of asking ourselves the right questions prior to teaching the lesson. And what do our students need? And what is the least painful way for me and to them to get it? Yeah. Uh, and so, so many uh, times it's not that way, is it? We take yeah. the people route both for us and for our students. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, if, if we approach the classroom looking at our students through the uh, lens of assets they bring instead of deficits that we believe they might have, that, you know, that I think gets us a good start to thinking about how to make the classroom uh, a more fun and academically enriching experience for everybody involved. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that you got into there, and I sort of mentioned um, reflecting on, on your, your answer there was um, the idea of, uh, of differentiation. And I really, really like and, and promoted to the best of my ability um, the videos you created with Katie Halsipniewski. I hope I'm pronouncing her name the right mm -hmm. way. Uh, and edu Education Week, and I, I would highly recommend anybody um, to, to watch those. Not, we'll post them at the end of the, uh, or on the, on the uh, written version of the podcast. Um, and it was, it was all about like, how do you differentiate without basically going crazy, right? Without losing your mind. How do you do this without right. sort of 
planning yourself into, uh, you know, well into the night so that you're not sleeping. Um, so I would recommend people look at that, but to get us started on that, thinking about that and thinking about how people, how teachers should differentiate or can differentiate with reading comprehension, again, without kind of losing their mind, what are two to three strategies? Um, you, you just mentioned a couple, but sort of concrete strategies that, that you feel like are useful for teachers who are like, all right, how do I do this? I'm really struggling at this point with reading comprehension. Uh, one key tool that both Katie and I are big fans of are inductive, something that's called inductive learning. Tell me the about idea that. Of it, sure, and induct, uh, inductive is where you provide examples and students use those examples to develop concepts. Whereas deductive is where you give the concepts and then give examples that reinforce it. So for an inductive learning, uh, for it related to text, for example, a simple text, I would, uh, let's say in US history, if we are um, exploring the War of 1812, or even better, let's say we, we just recently did one on Thomas Jefferson. So I would give a series of maybe 10 one sentence pieces of information about Thomas Jefferson uh, that were accessible. And then students have to put those into, let's say, three categories. One might be personal life. Another is Sally Hemings. Another is American Revolution. Uh, so students have to categorize them and then for an underlying the clues, the evidence that would lead them to believe that it goes in those categories. And categorization is a high level uh, thinking skill and you know, promoted by pretty much I mean, Common Core and every other related standard. Mm -hmm. But doing it with simple, you know, simple sentences and then students categorize them, then they have to add to them and find other items that would fit in those categories. And you can differentiate those data sets by making them as long or as short as you want. With a newcomer, I can have a series of 10 short sentences. Maybe not a newcomer, maybe a, new, a newcomer who's been here for a few months. Sure. Uh, for a student has a higher level English proficiency, I can turn it into paragraphs, right? And student who hasn't only been here for a few months can add to the categories by looking through a picture book about Thomas Jefferson or an audio with uh, a text supported by audio and animation book online. And then the idea is once students develop enough items for each category, then they can turn those categories into paragraphs and we get into writing. Right. So, uh, uh, and learning about paragraphs and topic sentences. Okay. You know, so the topic sentence on Thomas Jefferson's activities in the revolution, Thomas Jefferson was important to the American revolution. Okay. And then just copy down the sentences that they already put into categories and they have their first paragraph and ultimately their own essay. They're for, you know, one of their first essays. It's a, uh, this idea of categorization, and it's a great tool for differentiation because there's, I mean, you can use that for pictures. Right. For newcomers, I use the picture word inductive model where, where students identify items in the picture, 
puts them in, put them into categories, write sentences out of those sent, uh, those words, and then put those words into paragraphs. A excellent example of reading and also as a tool to introduce the idea of writing an argument is a lesson that I learned out of uh, the Peace Corps. Peace Corps had a great, has a great book on teaching ELLs, though it's like it's 30 years old, but it's still great. And they adapted a, a concept from Paulo Freire uh, where they have a picture of a problem, uh, you know, whether it's someone being bullied on the playground or uh, someone who's homeless and a series, okay, what is the problem? Why does the problem exist? Have you ever experienced the problem? You know anybody else who's ever experienced the problem? What is the potential solution? What is the best solution? And those words push students to have to do some reading to be able to construct a response. Right. But those can also be differentiated with uh, different sentence starters question starters. I mean, the key is flexibility, right? And for students, there'll be, you're going to have some students who are going to get it right away. You will have a proficiency and you let them go. Uh, other students require more scaffolds and you have graphic organizers and you have sentence starters ready mm -hmm. for them. We should say this is nothing new. You know, I mean, we're talking about English language learners here, but this is the case with pretty much every student that you work with. I mean, some are going to grasp it quickly and others uh, more slowly. It's just the challenge of, of language can be very daunting um, to people, particularly if they're new, um, if demographics are shifting and they haven't done this work often. So I, I just, I'm going to push you a little bit on, you talked about the inductive learning. You gave us the example of the categorization, and then you were comparing that with deductive learning. So my question is, can you give us an example of like, you just showed, you gave us an example of how we might do it the right way, which kind of incorporates differentiation, allows for students to work kind of in different paces, establishes a foundation to be able to write at some point and to create their first essay, which is wonderful. I sort of, I'm hesitant to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How does this look if it's done the wrong way? If it's not differentiated and if, you know, it's, it's not flexible, as you said. I mean, I think we have all experienced that as students, and there have certainly been times when uh, I have messed up. <laughs> so, oh, no, uh, no way as a teacher. <laughs> so you've done a lesson that didn't work the exact way that you wanted it, and it didn't differentiate for anyone? I don't know anything about that. <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, I still, I, I still have a vivid memory of a few years ago we've been – I was working with uh, beginning uh, or an early intermediate ELLs, and we were uh, reading uh, the story of Ferdinand. Oh, it's my, one of my son's favorites. Oh, it's great. And we were reading other stories, and now it was time to write a story. And, 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 and students had done analyses of, of the story of Ferdinand and we actually, I think we also read another book, The Teacher from the Black Lagoon, you know, and I said, okay, now let's, now you get to write your story. I want you to figure out who your protagonist is and who your anta antagonist is and what's the problem in the story. 
and I gave everybody got a blank sheet of paper and nobody did anything. <laughs> you know? And I thought, hmm, okay, this, is, this isn't working. So I went, so that night I just created some graphic organizers and we decided uh, and created sort of a step-by-step -step process where that students began by illustrating uh, and then had to just fill out certain boxes. Yep. And it went ex very smoothly after yeah. that. You know, yeah. that, that blank pieces of paper doesn't really cut it when you've when, you know, you're in a new country, you've never written anything before in that language and you're scared and it uh, doesn't matter how many stories you've written before. And if your, your education has been interrupted by uh, being a refugee or, or a war, uh, there's, I mean, people just need a lot of support. Right. So, you know, you can't go wrong with scaffolding. I've never gone, I've never had a problem in class due to providing quote unquote too much scaffolding. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, the, the mistake that I think you can make is to try that blank paper trick uh, over and over again and wonder right. why you're wondering why you're hammering this nail, but it's just not sinking in. Right. Uh, right. I mean, it's just, and, and that's, that holds true for English proficient as well as, students who are not very proficient in English. There's this thing called the Zigernach, and I may, may be mispronouncing it, effect, where if you get somebody started on something, they're more likely to follow through as opposed to uh, uh, just giving them something without encouragement to get them started. So having a a graphic organizer that has a sentence starter with a blank and they just got to write one word. It builds confidence. It gets people started. Right. Yeah. And I feel like the other piece of that is like building, building confidence and scaffolding and getting someone started. And, and that's all crucial too. Um, but I think like the idea of once you get started, that also inspires some curiosity. So mm -hmm. like it, trying to, um, get students to be curious about learning, um, was was crucial for me as a foreign language teacher, uh, different different game, um, but still one that you're sort of working with people with different proficiencies. But you know, even like showing uh, students like only part of a picture, so that inspired that curiosity to write, and then sort of revealing right. some of it. That's just one example, I think, of many that that would get people to start to think about. Oh, I'm curious about this, so I want to continue with it. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Showing people a corner of the picture, what's in the rest of the part, what's going on in the rest of the part of it. Good, good use for those uh, old overhead projectors that everybody right. wants to throw. Right, <laughs> right. And, and now you know those things are those things are uh, like nostalgic and and hip again when you see them. They're no, those students are excited to see those. <laughs> Funny, it's like a rotary phone. Um, okay, great. So I want to shift gears um, a little bit, and, and you actually talked a little bit about it uh, when you were speaking earlier about sort of how you set up these kinds. Um, or how you get students to kind of begin to work in groups, not just by sort of giving them a blank piece of paper. I mean, the idea of, uh, of, of direct instruction for, for reading strategies is important. You point that out in your book, um, especially when working with, with English language learners. But you also recognize, and I think this is important, that if it's overused, this type of instruction 
definitely has the potential to take away uh, joy from from reading, mm-hmm. which is which I think mm-hmm. is key. So my question is, how, how do we, it's like, I mean, this is such a common question. It's like the structure and agency question. How, how much, uh, how do teachers find a balance between giving the instruction that students need, but also allowing them to have the agency to kind of really enjoy what reading is meant to, to do, which is to be um, a vehicle for learning and enjoyment? Well, specifically related to reading strategies, I think what I try to do in the classroom is first explicitly teach various reading strategies ranging from visualization to making connections to summarizing. And then after students have a sufficient amount of practice at that, giving them the option of, okay, what reading strategy do you think is most helpful to you would be most helpful to you in reading this particular text that's great and you know and having to do it because and, and i've had a number of conversations with researchers about this who 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 have some questions about overuse of reading strategies and i think it's an example of sometimes you know researchers who've haven't been in the classroom for a long time or who have never been in the classroom don't also don't recognize that one of the key reasons for using these reading strategies, it's not only for comprehension, but it's also for engagement. Yep. That without ask, pushing and challenging students to apply some of these skills, some, a fair number of students, wouldn't even read it to begin with. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if you read them, you know, pair students up. I mean, if, if I've done a lot of reading and research on the, on student motivation and, and helping to encourage intrinsic motivation, one key motivational tool is relatedness. Is what you're asking students to do going to bring them in relationship with someone they like, with their respect? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Having them read with a partner is one way to do that. Providing autonomy, helping students have autonomy. Autonomy. Do they have some voice in how and what they are doing? Giving students the option to choose what kind of, comp- of reading strategy or, that they should use. Uh, so those, you know, having to incorporate that. There's a lot to balance, right? I mean, you want to well, you got to balance motivation. You got to motive. Uh, you want to include. You want students to want to learn a language, to want to read, and you want them to do it <laughs> as yeah. well. Well, I, th- I think there's an element of everything that you did. It's not like a panacea, like nothing's really a silver bullet, but but I think there's an element of everything you just mentioned in in this this idea of, okay, here's some reading strategies. Like I'm going to show you all of these things, maybe just kind of dip your toes into all of them. But which one really works for you? Now you're getting into metacognition, which has an effect on. Uh, and I was going to ask you a, a, a question on, on metacognition. I think we'll include it in the written in the written post, though, because it's it's crucial. But you're getting into that, I think, which is like, boy, I need to figure out how I learn the best. But also, I think it's crucial that people are exposed to different things, even if they're not necessarily the best um, ways for those for them to learn. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So it's, it sounds yeah. like by doing that, you're sort of exposing them to everything. But then, so you're, there's the structure. Here's all the stuff that you can use. The agency is all right. Which one of these things works best for you? Go do it and do it to read something that you're going to take pleasure in. Have the autonomy in that. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, those, I, I think the more that we can include any of what uh, researchers say is sort of the four keys to intrinsic motivation, you know, autonomy, mentioned um, relatedness, another is competence, creating situations where students feel like they can do what they're being asked to do. Yep. That's one of the reasons we really promote the idea of a growth mindset. Now, those are some of the keys to keep in mind. And I think then the fourth element is um, relevance. How it helps students see what they're learning can help them achieve what they want to achieve in life. Yeah. And for English language learners, there are some, uh, some advantages, especially if we're teaching in the United States, people recognize that why they need to learn English. Oh, yeah. We'll walk outside <laughs> yeah, right. and it's there. That's where it's different from being a, a foreign language teacher. Right, 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 right. Or if we're teaching English in a country where English is the primary language. You know, that, that issue of relevance is, is less obvious. But at least for, for, for most English language learners, the relevance is pretty clear. You don't really have to deal with that. Have to have to try to argue, talk with them, and convince them of of the relevance of learning this. Yeah, and you can let and you can leverage that. And you know, the other thing, like I did a lot um, uh, on adult learning theory for 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 about a year. I was kind of delved into that work. And I mean, the the, the similarities really between between learning theory and and, the, and motivation, intrinsic motivation for students and for adults, isn't really that different. So it it, it should it shouldn't. And I'm sure that there's researchers and people are listening that say, well, it, it is, and I'm sure it is, but. From the from from a, from a, from a, the outside looking in, from someone who's not a researcher, we want the same things, right? People want the same things, and I think the reason that I mentioned that is because, again, like if you can get into that mindset and create that empathy for the students you're working with, particularly English language learners, it just makes it easier to design lessons. Um, in this case, readings, uh, reading comprehension strategies that are um, that are more relevant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a couple more questions here while we have you. I want to ask, I want to ask you about what, one thing I'm really excited about lately is that family and community engagement seems to be getting a lot of attention. I have not been in schools. I will say I, I left teaching three years ago, so I haven't seen it in place, but it does seem to be sort of getting a lot of, uh, of attention, well-deserved now. So what role, first of all, I'd love to hear your perspective on that if you think that that is happening. Um, and second, I'd love to hear you uh, talk about what role you think families, communities, and then engagement with those uh, have to do with um, reading comprehension and improving those skills. Yeah, families, family engagement can be a huge asset to student uh, acquisition of English skills, uh, ranging from just encouraging their kids to read at home, whether it's in their home language or in English. I mean, plenty of research shows how transferable uh, fluency in one language can be moved into English. Uh, to, to other ways, for example, at our school, well, you know, one year we do, we do a lot of home visits. And one year I did a home visit to a Hmong family uh, and one of the you know, one of the father was saying, "Well, I'm really impressed with what you folks are doing with technology, and I wish we could afford 
to have a computer here at home so that I could learn and use it to learn English too because it's hard to, you know, the bus system is really bad and it's hard to get to the adult school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I asked them, well, do you, do you think other parents would have the, have that same interest? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you bring them together? Maybe we can talk to the school to see what we could do. And then he did. And then out of that, we, this was a few years ago before cell, you know, before cell phones were so ubiquitous. We were able to create a family literacy project where we provided 50 families, home computers, and internet access. And the whole family, the, the only requirement was everyone in the family needed to spend an hour a day uh, using the computer for learning English. They could do anything else they wanted with it for the rest of the time, but at least one hour a day. And what people were telling us was that basically the families would gather around together. <laughs> They'd all spend an hour uh, learning English together. And That's we found great. that, yeah, and that, that the, uh, the families, we had a control group, the families that did do that, uh, the whole family, including the student in the class, in the school, increased their English scores, their English uh, comprehension by uh, about 80% higher. The family, the, these, the families did. These aren't the, the students. Families, the families, which included the student. It included yeah, yeah. the student, but the whole, because we did, we, we did a, a pre-assessment for everybody in the family, too, as they came in to pick up the computer. What, so, uh, what's amazing about that to me is that the way that you just answered that, my question was basically directed toward uh, how, how has that helped? How, is, how might family engagement help students read better? But you just answered the question by telling me how families learned English more along with their students, which is, that's amazing. And I feel like, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, based on what you said, this all was the result of a home visit? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, home visits are hard. That's another topic for another time. We've talked about family engagement on the podcast. Um, but the, what can come out of that, this is a great example, uh, by just getting to know folks and understand what their needs are. So that's great. All right. So I'm going to wrap it up here, even though I feel like we could talk for another uh, four, four hours, but I realize people are, are pressed for time. Uh, so question that we ask everyone, I'd love to ask you as well. And uh, before uh, you answer this question, I am going to say to everybody uh, that, that your book, The ELL Teacher's Toolbox, um, is a great resource. So I'm already going to mention that one, but I'm going to ask you um, to uh, let us know if there's a book or resource that has influenced you either in your personal or professional life or both that you'd like to share. I think. From my community organizing experience, uh, I mean, during my organizing career, I spent most of my time working for the Industrial Areas Foundation, which was started by a man named Saul Alinsky in the 1930s. And he's, he wrote a book called uh, Rules for Radicals, which sort of lays out the tenets of effective community organizing, uh, particularly focusing on relationship building. Uh, and... I think that has had a tremendous influence on, on my life and on many people's lives, even though at the Republican convention a couple of years ago, uh, Ben Carson uh, ended up claiming that both Hillary Clinton and Saul Alinsky were devil worshipers. Uh. And, uh, so, I mean, the guy's been dead since 1970, but people, you know, people, some conservatives still just try to, 
dredge them up to attack them. And clearly uh, it had some uh, resonance with everybody. Though. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, and Barack Obama was an organizer in the Alinsky tradition as well. But I think Rules for Radical is a great read and can inform uh, good organizers and good teachers. Great. Well, two things I'll say to that. One, nobody's mentioned it, which is great. That's a new one. And two, I always like these books that were written like a long, long time ago, but are still like totally relevant. I mean, books like that are uh, are not common. Um, and when people mention them, those are the ones that I that I try to read sort of selfishly for myself right away. But we'll post that as well. Great. Uh, last question. How can people learn more about the work that you're doing? I mean, you're all over Twitter. It's easy to find your stuff on EdWeek, but do you have any um, uh, places where people can go to find out more about what you're doing? Uh, I've got a website for the day blog. I post daily. So just type in my name and I'll probably be the first hit. People are welcome. Always lots of resources there to, to access and uh, also to contribute if you've got some ideas. Great. Well, Larry, I'm going to end by saying this. I don't know how you do it all, but I'm really glad that you do. Um, and I know there are many others listening who uh, feel the same way. Um, you've been really generous with your time. We're recording this uh, on a Saturday. Um, so we really appreciate that. Uh, appreciate what you do for your students and for teachers um, from around the country. And just uh, thanks so much for joining us. We hope to collaborate more in the future. Well, thank you. And maybe since it is a Saturday, maybe Steve, you and I both need to get a life. <laughs> another conversation for another time but perhaps okay, okay. all right Larry. Good talking with you. thanks Bye. so much thanks for listening to highest aspirations if you liked our show please be sure to join the ell community at elevationeducation.com slash ell community where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.